G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. Perhaps more than ever, we are aware of the effects of war, disaster, famine, disease and persecution on Christians. The challenging thought is that suffering endured by Christians around the world is on the rise. More confronting is the prospect that some church leaders are now warning that dimensions of persecution are on the rise here in Australia. Some attention today to the challenging thought, when being a Christian is a crime. It's not been our experience so far, but for millions around the world, it is a daily reality. Well, this week is Suffering Church Action and Awareness Week. It began last Sunday. It continues through until this coming Saturday. Our special guest through this coming hour leads the Australian arm of the global Christian charity Barnabas Aid, formerly known as Barnabas Fund. They provide hope and aid for suffering Christians. Ashley Saunders is Head of Partnerships for Barnabas Aid in Australia. Ashley, a special welcome back to 2020. Uh, Thank you, Neil. It really is very good to be with you and Great to be engaging with your listeners yet again. Ashley, first of all, uh, the recent change, Barnabas Fund to Barnabas Aid. Give us your quick reflection on uh, the name change. Uh, Very quickly, and that is that Barnabas Fund uh, told people what we are or who we are, but didn't say much about what we do. And so Barnabas Aid um, is focused on what we do. And so the word Barnabas, uh, a New Testament name, a Jewish name meaning son of encouragement, And so, yes, we have been and we continue to be a fund that provides encouragement to our brothers and sisters, but we provide practical and spiritual aid. And so it's been determined. And uh, I think it's a good move to say we are Barnabas, we're encouragers, and we provide aid to our Christian brothers and sisters. And just a few thoughts on the size of Barnabas Aid, because you've just returned from a significant gathering, even here in Australia, some international uh, representatives here, and you're discussing uh, you know, strategy for the way forward. Uh, how big is Barnabas Aid these days? On a global scale, we're still a small organisation, but uh, we are expanding, and that's great because the need is expanding. So we had in Adelaide... Uh, over the last few days, representatives, probably about 30 or 40 people, representing 14 different countries uh, from uh, every inhabited continent. And uh, just to hear from brothers and sisters, to hear some of the challenges, to look forward, uh, to see how we can meet the biggest needs. And we can talk about this later in, in, in the hour, but uh, one of the greatest needs is meeting the food crisis that uh, in places where Christians are poor and marginalised, uh, it is hitting them so much more than other people. Uh, we've got some examples to talk about as our conversation goes. Uh, to draw attention to to the theme of Suffering Church Action and Awareness Week, it's understanding the times, something that listeners on this program are used to us talking about. It is a theme for Suffering Church Action and Awareness Week. Give us your insights here into the value of talking about understanding the times. Well, understanding the times is 
very important for any Christian because we need a sense of discernment. We need to have our eyes open. We need to be looking up and we need to be looking outward. We need to be looking up to the Lord. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we need to be living in a world that is not yet uh, experiencing the grace and the mercy and the celebration of Jesus' second return. So we need to be looking up. We need to be looking out. And uh, we need to understand those those things around us. Uh, that way, we won't be fearful. Uh, the Bible says uh, that we're not being given a, a spirit of fear, uh, but a spirit of power. And so we need to make sure, you see, if we, don't, if we don't study the word, if we're not focusing on our relationship with the Lord, if we're not in fellowship with others and looking upwards as well as outwards, we could be overcome by fear. And that's not a good thing. No doubt there are some who are concerned, and perhaps we won't say we're overcome by fear yet, but there are a number of developments that are happening around Australia now, and uh, typically around uh, schools, uh, which people are very concerned about. Even the thought that discrimination practices uh, may well bring a point where Christians are actually uh, discriminated against, as was the Andrew Thorburn case of just recently. But that's not a schools thing, that's a sport thing. But schools, sport, across a lot of different sectors. And and people are getting a little more concerned and perhaps even aware that somehow or other we may well be touched uh, by some levels of persecution in the coming times. The trouble with persecution coming here to Australia is that our eyes can be distracted from the very high significant persecution that's happening in other nations right now. Got some context here for us, Ashley, around how we might be feeling and what's actually going on in so many places around the world? I think the concern is great and the concern is legitimate. And my experience, though, is that the majority of Christians that I speak with, when they are aware of what's happening locally, it actually helps them to understand better and to open their eyes better to what's happening globally. And uh, they start to understand that what we have experienced in Western countries over the last few hundred years is an aberration in terms of Christian history, but it's also an aberration in terms of what the vast majority of Christians experience in the world today. And, uh, and, and they're suddenly having their eyes opened because they're seeing that we're not immune. This isn't just something that happens to other people, that somehow or other we must have had great faith because uh, we haven't uh, experienced this. And, uh, and they start to see it in context. And so being aware of what's happening here, I think, opens our eyes to what's happening in other places. And that serves the church here in Australia, and it serves our own Christian growth as we start to see ourselves in the context of others. You know, Christians around the world are still the most persecuted people in the world. Let me say that again, because that needs to sink in. Christians around the world are still the most persecuted people in the world. I'm interested in the words you use when you say, we feel like we are the ones with great faith because we haven't been suffering the persecution I think perhaps the opposite is true. Those who are suffering some persecution are the ones whose faith is tested and refined in the fire. And no doubt there's a strength in the persecuted church that we're perhaps not so familiar with. And they teach us about faithfulness. I think I've said on your program before that when we speak with persecuted Christians, how would you like us to pray? They rarely say, please pray that persecution will go away. They most commonly ask us to pray 
that in the face of persecution they would be faithful because that is a testing of their faith, that is a refining through the fire, but they also know that it's a powerful evangelistic tool. And so uh, whether you're in a country where Christianity is a crime or whether you're in a country like Australia where things are starting to get even more difficult than they were, whatever, whichever of those countries you're in, if we can be faithful, then that's a powerful evangelistic tool. It shows something. We're willing to suffer. We're willing to stand up for our beliefs. This is not transitory. This is something permanent and something beneficial. And when others see that, it has them questioning because I thought I thought Christians were bigots. I, I thought Christians uh, were this. I thought Christians were that. And it starts to change or have their minds questioning themselves and their views about us and the Lord we serve. Well, I do want to hear some stories from the field from you today too, Ashley. And listeners will be interested in some of the developments, some of the stories that are coming out of nations where there is significant persecution I wonder which one you might like to start with because uh, there's one from Iran where there's been a Christian man who's been imprisoned there for the last five years, Nasser Navad Galtape. What's his story? Well, Iran is a place very close to my heart, having been there some years ago. And uh, I fell in love with uh, Persian people. And uh, when you uh, when you open your eyes to the reality... There was a Christian leader in the States who once said, you will never lock eyes on someone God doesn't love. You will never lock eyes on someone for whom Jesus didn't die. And so uh, I I love uh, the Persian people, and Jesus loves the Persian people. And uh, Persian Christians uh, have suffered a lot. Now, uh, to provide some context for a minute or so, uh, there are groups of Christians in Iran, Assyrian um, ethnically and by language, and Armenian ethnically and by language. And even though there are some restrictions on what they can do and how they can do it, they are uh, tolerated uh, to a certain extent. But Farsi-speaking Christians, those who are Iranian, those who are Persians, uh, are either converts from Islam to, to Christianity or the children of converts, and their life is very difficult and there are no churches now allowed um, to uh, to be speaking in the Farsi language. Uh, and so uh, Nasser was imprisoned in the uh, infamous um, Evan prison in Tehran, and he's been there for five years. And it's a, a real delight to know that he's finally been released. And I'll say this uh, before I pause for a breath. When we uh, released the news to our supporters... One of the emails I received almost immediately was from one of our supporters here in Australia who said, Praise the Lord, I have been praying for Nasser every day since I first heard that he was imprisoned. And there are stories. Uh, I'll be linking some listeners with Barnabas Aid at the end of our conversation, and uh, people will be able to access some of these stories of people who are going through intense persecution and being able to, on the other side, celebrate along with those supporters of Barnabas Aid when there is a breakthrough. But let's stay with NASA's story for just a few moments because people will say, well, he must have been in prison for some particular reason and it uh, can't be just because he was a Christian. But when we're talking about having Christian faith, Ashley, the thought of acting against national security or the intention to overthrow the regime. These are the sorts of accusations that come when Christians and their 
faith position goes into somehow a contrast to that which is brought by the state. Thoughts here on on how this persecution takes a hold like that? Yeah, it, it could be the weaponizing of laws. And uh, when we speak uh, in a moment or two about the situation in parts of India, we, we can see that there's been another weaponizing of laws there, that they say one thing but they mean another. And in the case of uh, Nasser in Iran, uh, you're right to mention those words because he was uh, imprisoned for acting against national security with the intention to overthrow the regime. So what was he actually doing? As a Christian convert, he was involved in a house church. And we might all think we're involved with either a house church here. A lot of people are. Something like 800,000 Australians have uh, their connection to a home church group. And, of course, there are millions more who are meeting in their regular church each week. So just the alignment with a house church or being part of the church is the criminal thing. Uh, Yes, and whether it's in Iran or other countries, in so often... In so many different cases, what can happen is that you find someone that you can make an example of. And if you can make an example of that person, you're hoping that other people will be dissuaded from taking the same course. Uh, And so, uh, you know, if we make an example of this man, Nasser, then hopefully there won't be others who'll be tempted to leave Islam um, in favor of following Jesus. And there won't be others Uh, who will be tempted to be involved in this illegal activity uh, called a house church. So if you make a law or change the law and it becomes an intimidation practice, uh, it's trying to dissuade people from believing that or being aligned with that, that's the sort of thing that governments can do uh, when they're trying to control a populace uh, just because they've changed a law. And I know that some will be reading between the lines and hearing something a little deeper here about some things developing in Australia. Any thoughts here about the way things have been developing in Australia along these sorts of lines? Yeah, well, it's probably appropriate to do that in the context of what's been happening in India. Because uh, if I quote the name of the legislation in India, it will resonate with many of your listeners. Because the name of uh, legislation in India uh, is the... um, Protection of Freedom of Religion Act, Protection of Right to Freedom of Religion Bill, which came into law in one of the states in September. And you might think, how can you possibly uh, offend against the protection of the right to freedom of religion? Well, what's happened in India is that under that name, um, this is basically an anti-conversion law. And so uh, if you intend to change your religion, according to that law, you need to give the government advance notice, 30 days advance notice that you intend to change your religion. And uh, if you induce anybody to change religion uh, in any way, including that one person might have the ultimate truth or that one religion might be better than another or that one religion might give you divine um, uh, pleasure and all those kinds of things, you can see, and I think your listeners will be able to hear that under the name of trying to protect freedom of religion, it's actually weaponizing that to outlaw so much of what Christian evangelism is all about. And, uh, and so uh, here in Australia, there's, there's been calls for the last uh, four or five years for a freedom of religion bill or a protection uh, of our religious freedom laws. And we need to be very careful what we ask for. We need to 
uh, when we when we eventually find what this bill is on about, we need to be very careful. We need to ask ourselves, how can this actually be working against what it is that we as followers of Jesus are keen to do? This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might have a question, you might have a comment, even a concern or a critique. Well, 1-800-316-316, Ashley Saunders is our guest. He's Head of Partnerships at Barnabas Aid in Australia. Ashley, let me just ask you here. Uh, when you mention that word discernment, uh, we need to be discerning as to the way things are changing here in Australia. Uh, Give us your insight here on what that discernment means, learning from the activities that go on in other parts of the world because we don't want to make the same mistakes or we want to be uh, even uh, equipped by some of the wisdom they've applied in dealing with those mistakes. Thoughts here? Yeah, we, we we need to look up and out. I've said that before, and what I mean by that is we need to have Holy Spirit power to observe those things and to see what that means for us. And instead of lamenting that Christianity is no longer in the centre of Australian culture, to actually recognise that God is still God, that Jesus is still Saviour and Lord, even if we are on the margins. And uh, Christianity in Australia is, of course, uh, as your listeners know, no longer in the centre and moving to the margins. And so for us, we need to have that understanding. We need to recognize that God still is who he is. We need to focus on our relationship with him. We need to study the word. We need to ask, what does it mean to be faithful uh, in this changing environment? And uh, if things go in a particular way, what does it mean uh, for, for me? What does it mean for my family? How can I still be a faithful follower? How can I still um, teach and instruct my children and grandchildren? Uh, And uh, how do I make sure that I can stay firm, steadfast, endure, and uh, and persevere? And so even as I say those words, many of your listeners who are familiar with Scripture uh, will be saying, just a minute, in the New Testament writings, I find those words about standing firm, about enduring, about persevering until the end. And uh, that there's a greater goal than living comfortably. There's a greater goal than having everything in this world. Wasn't it Jesus who said, what does it profit a man if he gains the world but loses his soul? And so we need to start living from that divine heavenly perspective. We need to recognize that whilst we're citizens in this country, that we're ultimately citizens of heaven living for God. We'll talk some more about this as we continue taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call. Graham is in Tasmania. Hi, Graham. Welcome. Good morning, gentlemen. We're uh, living in the times of a rejection of God throughout the world and, of course, persecution by certain peoples. And there's going to be a, a test for the people of the face of the earth in actual fact a very short time. Uh, Matthew 24, most people have some little understanding of that about wars and rumours of wars and persecutions, and of course, uh, as it was in the days of Noah. Look, uh, Deuteronomy, sort of say, Deuteronomy chapter 4, it's, you know, it calls about the blessings 
of God upon you if you keep my laws and statutes and commandments. But if you don't, you'll be cursed. You'll be cursed when you come in. You'll be cursed when you go out. Your crops will be cursed. Everything you set your mind to be cursed. And you'll be only, what, dismayed and, of course, sorrows of heart. So that's where we are today. We all do need to get on board, get closer to God, understand what Matthew 24 says, really, don't worship any man on the face of this earth. Look to Christ. I'll leave it at that. Uh, Graham, good insight there and uh, some reference to our obedience and God's blessing that comes on our obedience or his blessing that's withheld if we're disobedient. A thought or two from you, uh, Ashley, for Graham. Yeah, yeah, two thoughts. First of all, Graham, you mentioned Matthew 14. And, of course, in verses 13 and 14 uh, of that chapter, uh, we find Jesus saying that the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And so there's Jesus' call for endurance to stand firm. And the other thing comes from Matthew 13 with the parable of the uh, of the sower, where we're told that some of the seed fell on the um, rocky ground where uh, it wasn't very deep, but it uh, the roots took quickly and that they received the word of God with great joy. But as soon as the heat came, as soon as the, pers- the persecution came, as soon as there was torment, they fell away. And uh, Jesus' instruction, his encouragement to us is to stand firm. And we find that in Matthew 13 as well as Matthew 14. And, of course, uh, that reference to Matthew chapter 24, and uh, one of my favorite reflections from that chapter is Jesus' words, take heed that no one deceives you as we come into a time uh, when there are these wars and rumors of wars and expectation of levels of persecution. This thought of no one deceiving you, uh, that comes back to uh, even this theme that you've been picking up on, Ashley, understanding the times. Yes, it does. And, uh, again, in the West... We need to be very careful of a doctrine that may very well come across our path that says if you're truly faithful, you'll have it easy. That somehow or other, if you're experiencing hardships, uh, then basically you need to have more faith. You need to do this in order to have it easy. Uh, I don't read anywhere in Scripture where short of the second coming of Jesus Christ that we as his followers are told we're going to have it easy. In fact, we're warned about the opposite. Uh, Graham in Tasmania, anything to add to the sorts of things you were you were talking about? Well, basically, we're in very interesting times. The Bible itself is speaking, crying out. If people realise that the weather, the terrible weather, the disasters uh, for the world is so blessed, Our, the countries that have been so blessed have rejected God, and I've been expecting for us to have. A lot of problems because God's not happy. He's sending a message to the mankind. If he will just turn and repent, acknowledge him, and uh, we we not seem to be doing that. Interesting, isn't it? The thought of discerning the times, uh, and a lot of people are concerned about weather events and uh, thoughts about climate change and whatever you think about climate change. Uh, whether you think this is real or it's a hoax or it's somewhere in between, it's happening, but it's not man-made. All of these things serve an actual good purpose in that they help us to try and discern what's important. Any thoughts, Ashley? Yes, it is. And uh, whether it's Graham or you or me, Neil, or other listeners, we can read Matthew 24. And if we read Matthew 24, uh, I think many of your listeners will be saying, just a minute, was Jesus talking about a time such as this? And, uh, And then if the answer is, well, he might be, then the question is, Jesus, how would I live for you? And Holy Spirit, uh, can you empower me? 
Can you strengthen and encourage me? And yes, rebuke and correct, because that's part of the Holy Spirit's ministry as well. Uh, Shave off the edges that I don't need, that I might live for you in these difficult times. Graham in Tasmania, thank you so much for your call. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's take another one. Chris is in Melbourne. Hello, Chris. Welcome along. G'day, Neil and Ashley. Um, yeah, I think what we should realise more than anything with the persecution of Christians right now is it's a definite sign of the end times, the end end times. Uh, Jesus said you will be hated by all nations. We've never been hated by you know, all nations before, but Christianity now is hated everywhere. Uh, you'll be handed over to people, and they think they'll be doing God a favour by killing you. So I think, you know, the church has got to realise and, you know, yeah, it's, it's, um, lift their game. That's all I can say, yeah. Ashley, a thought or two for Chris? Um, be encouraged, Chris. And in terms of end times, there's a sense in which we've been living in the end times ever since uh, uh, Jesus' first uh, incarnation. Uh, and uh, in terms of when Jesus' second coming will be, um, uh, all I know is that it's 2,000 years sooner than it was 2,000 years ago. And uh, it's important. When I look at biblical prophecy, uh, biblical prophecy for me always has that edge of, in light of God being in control, in light of all of the things that God tells us, how then should I live today? So when 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 we look at uh, Matthew 24, when we look at Revelation, when we recognize that so much of what Scripture talks about can be seen and heard around us, the question is, how then should I live today? And what does faithfulness mean? And what does that look like today in my life and the life of those around me? Uh, well, I've got Chris on the line here. Uh, something Chris said, which was a little bit, let me just say, and I don't think you'll mind me making this critique, Chris, a little extreme when you say, Everybody hates us. Uh, the research would show that not everybody hates us. Lots of people love the good work that happens by local churches in communities all around this wonderful nation. Uh, if we get too, uh, you know, throw a blanket over everyone and say everyone, uh, everybody hates us, uh, we'll somehow rather want to crawl into a shell and try and protect ourselves. But there is a world out there that does want to hear the gospel, that is open to an invitation to come along to church on Sunday and that love of Christ is needed to be shared and uh, we don't need to be necessarily under a certain fear there. Ashley, before we take another call and just to encourage listeners, 1-800-316-316, in our earlier segment before the news, uh, when you were talking about the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, and I think you were quoting there a scripture about being able to stand firm. Some will be thinking, isn't there a contrasting way of thinking about this now? Do I just adapt to the situation as those who might be anti-Christian make laws that bring my Christian conduct under a criminal code? Or do I resist those? Any thoughts here for adapt or resist? And in some cases, it's probably a combination of both, and it depends on what are you adapting. And uh, and so as long as we're not saying, uh, I'm going to stand firm and resist doing things in a different way. Uh, someone once said to me years ago when I lived in another state, uh, we should be conservative in our theology and contemporary in our practices. And so what are we adapting? Are we adapting the way we do things? Are we adapting the way in which we engage with people? Uh, I think they're good ad adaptations to make, uh, but we shouldn't be uh, compromising our principles. 
And we need to remember that, uh, and this is, I guess, summing up a whole range of New Testament teaching, that as citizens of a country, we are to pray for the government, we are to obey the laws unless they conflict with the law of God, and we should only, in a sense, resist those laws when we are asked by those laws to do something that would be in conflict with what God requires of us. And so that's, again, where you need discernment. Is this something where I'm being asked to adapt my methods? Am I being asked here to do things differently? Uh, am I being asked to uh, compromise on my principles? And, uh, and so discernment. And, and again, can I suggest here again we see the benefit of the body, uh, not just me discerning this for myself, but how can we together discern uh, what it is in this changing environment? And on the resistance side of that equation, the thought that you might stand firm and protect those things that will allow our children and our grandchildren uh, to be freely available to attend Sunday school, to be a part of a local church, to be a part of a youth group, to be discipled, to become strong in their faith. There's a certain sense in which that needs to be protected. And part of that resistance side might be standing up and speaking up when you are required to. Uh, yes, and raising the issue of children, we spoke before the news about uh, the changing situation in some states in India, in particular the state of Karnataka. And uh, in the law uh, that we were talking about in that state, um, it, I think it'll be of great interest to listeners that even though there are heavy punishments for what might be regarded as forced conversions or influenced conversions, that if you're... Um, work is amongst a child or amongst the lower caste of the Hindu religion, it's a double penalty. So think what the penalty was before and double it. If, if you're going to be working with children and if you're going to be working with those uh, who, uh, let, let's be blunt, who Hindu says have got no hope. They're right at the bottom of the pile. And they're the people who are looking for the hope of Jesus Christ. They're the ones who in many ways are seeing the hope of Jesus Christ and coming to Christ. And if you're working with children, if you're working with those lower caste people, then the penalty is double. Interesting to draw an alignment here. And uh, I'll do so cautiously because what's happening here in Australia right now, and we might be thinking of things that are happening in Victoria or uh, things developing in Tasmania or in Western Australia around these sorts of conversion laws, uh, children who are thinking, well, I'm a boy, I think I might want to be a girl. And the laws that are developing around that, that criminalise Christian faith when there is any advice being offered to a child. Now, it's interesting we're talking about conversion laws because these are very similar and ours don't sound like religious conversion laws, but they are perhaps a proxy for an attack on the church and persecution against Christians. Any thoughts from you here, Ashley? Uh, certainly, in my view, in contradiction to a biblical theology, um, because a biblical theology is grounded um, in the fact that God is the creator, that God made males and females, that uh, he uh, made us in that way in order that we might be fruitful. And uh, again, uh, whether in the Old Testament, going back to Genesis, or in the New Testament, there's a command to be fruitful. Uh, and so uh, the things that you've mentioned are certainly um, rubbing against a biblical understanding of theology, a biblical understanding of our identity. We hear a lot about identity politics these days. 
And uh, again, um, in this context, let me urge listeners to find your identity in Jesus Christ. Don't find your identity in whether you're male or female. Don't find your identity in, uh, in, in sexual preference. Don't find your identity in your job or in your wealth, but find your identity in Jesus Christ, something that is permanent and that nobody can take away from you. And, uh, and so uh, there are some similarities uh, because the things you've mentioned are um, cons- inconsistent. I was going to say an attack on, and some of your listeners might agree that that's the case, but they're certainly inconsistent with a biblical understanding of our identity uh, made in the image of God. Taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Nathan has been waiting very patiently. Nathan uh, from Sydney, welcome along. Hi, I'd I'd like to um, ask about what's happening in Egypt. Um, My understanding is as much as the upper ranks of the Coptic Church, the biggest church in Egypt, is trying to make as much peace as possible. The cancer that is Christophobia amongst the culture and certain levels of governance is shocking to say the least. That's a special case, isn't it? And uh, I've been to Egypt, and the Coptics are the larger part of the Christian church there. The Evangelicals are the smaller part, but the dominant Israel, uh, the dominant uh, religion in Egypt is Islam, and so lots of laws uh, going that Islamic way. And yes, Coptics and Evangelicals uh, do uh, face a real challenge in their day-to-day life, trying to avoid uh, being arrested or being persecuted in so many ways because of their religion. Uh, Do you have a thought or two here, Ashley Saunders? Uh, Yes, I do. And just as we started this uh, segment or or the whole uh, conversation with the good news about Nasser's release from prison in, in Iran, I think it's appropriate to talk about some good news coming out of Egypt, where the government has recently permitted or given permits for the, the, the opening of additional Christian churches. And, uh, and so that's the face that's being shown to the world, that uh, we are becoming increasingly tolerant of Christianity. And, uh, and, and so Christians in Egypt are rejoicing that some new churches uh, have been approved. Uh, the issue that Nathan raises is also evident in other countries where you can have... Um, Three factors, and if this takes more than uh, 30 seconds to explain, then please forgive me. But there can be three factors. There can be the official law. Secondly, there can be the way that the official law is interpreted or applied or ignored. And thirdly, there's the mob. And so even in places where the official law might say one thing, uh, it might uh, be applied in a different way in given regions, and so you might find in different places, different parts of Egypt, that you're more likely to be arrested, for example, than in others, because the law is being applied in a different way, or in some places it might be being ignored. But the third thing is the mob. And I'm more familiar with Iran than Egypt, so let me talk about uh, things in Iran. And that is that even though apostasy, that is leaving Islam for another religion, principally Christianity, even though apostasy is an offence Um, against Islamic law and you can be put to death for it, Um, the Iranian authorities have not in practice been putting people to death 
But that doesn't mean that the mob likes that. And so there can be people who are so in, intent on the law being upheld that they take it into their own hands. And we know here in Australia that there can be people who take the law into their own hands. And so there are those three things. What is the official law? How is it applied or ignored? And thirdly, what about those um, who are outside the law? And it might appear that mob justice does away with rule of law. So it's got to be resisted uh, with some significance. Just to come back to our guest, uh, Nathan, calling in from Sydney. Uh, Nathan, uh, does that answer your query? Did you have something else to add? Yeah, that's pretty much in line with what I understood with what is happening in Egypt. Um, As I've got connections with the Coptic diaspora in Sydney, it just, with what I have heard, it's like, at at Al-Sisi, the president, seems to be, at least on the surface, very friendly and all that. When you start going down the lower ranks, it's you've got people who either don't want to uphold the goodwill or just give in to the cruelty that can be shown. Nathan, to thank you so much for calling in. And uh, President al-Sisi in Egypt certainly walking a tightrope uh, trying to keep control of a nation where there is uh, religious division in that way and uh, will be facing all sorts of challenges around mob justice and as you say the further you go down uh, sometimes the less likely the rule of law is in place. Thank you so much for your call Nathan. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316 Let's take another call. Grant is in Western Australia. Hi Grant G'day, how are you? Very well. What are your thoughts? I'm just going to take things on a slightly different bent to possible persecutions within Australia. Um, And that's on the medical front. There's friends that I have that are Malaysian, that are doctors, that are practicing in Australia. And they said they've they've seen persecution uh, from where they are from. And they fear for us because under the guise of medical safety, Christians are being uh, medicated and taken away because they speak to God or they hear from the Holy Spirit. So they've they, they themselves, they can talk fairly freely about their faith because they're deemed to have been seen as that's them, that's part of their culture. And if you're Western... Uh, or Australian in origin, um, they see it as a mental illness. Well, that really does open up a whole big dimension, doesn't it? Uh, When you've got uh, what might be condoned as Christianity uh, being seen as a mental illness and doctors then becoming almost uh, police for how that might uh, proliferate in a society and uh, and I've not heard of that happening in a place like Malaysia but uh, certainly that's the sort of thing you might connect with things that you might hear about in China uh, but uh, thoughts from you Ashley on uh, on those thoughts from uh, from Grant I haven't heard the specific situation in Malaysia to which Grant refers um, I was uh, spent. I spent much of the last couple of weeks with a colleague uh, from Malaysia, a, a Chinese-speaking man, 
and uh, some of the stories that he did tell from Malaysia, especially from the smaller, uh, more remote areas, are concerning. And uh, Christians in Malaysia certainly do know what it is to suffer at the hands uh, of the majority. Uh, I haven't heard of that specific situation, uh, but like you, Neil, in your first response, uh, I don't find it fanciful to think that at some stage, in some places, um, as the mega-narrative of culture continues to go or to move, that Christianity might not be seen as a mental illness. I, I, don't, I don't think that's fanciful. Uh, that somehow or other, if you hold to these doctrines, if you hold to this belief, uh, then there must be something wrong with you. Grant, you've raised a very important point, and I would thank you so much for calling through. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. And just before we move on, uh, the thought of who polices a state that has particular laws, because as you said a little earlier on, Ashley Saunders, when you have new laws... Uh, then you have uh, some ammunition to be able to shoot. And uh, you have people then who are enforcing those laws. And when we think that might be the police or even in some context, the secret police, you also have school teachers who are dobbing in those families because they overhear children talking about what goes on in their home. And so therefore, not too long about draw to think that doctors might also be coming uh, those ones who police the new laws that are in place that outlaw a Christianity. Uh, it's not fanciful to think of going in that direction. And uh, one of the books that our international director, Patrick Sukadeo, wrote some years ago was called uh, The New Civic Religion, uh, about the secular humanist agenda uh, to take over Western culture. And, and I might have quoted this before, but on one of the pages of the books, he quotes from a fellow who wrote in the Humanist magazine some decades ago. And this is my paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me, but it said that the, the battle will be waged by in the public school classrooms by teachers who correctly perceive themselves as the proselytizers of a new religion. And it's probably worth saying that again to let that sink in, that the humanist agenda does see it as a war against Christianity and against Christian values. And they see it being waged in public school classrooms by teachers who correctly perceive their role as the proselytizers of a new religion. Well, it is very disturbing, isn't it? Uh, we're nearly time to wrap up, but I do want to hear one more dimension, because there are a lot of dimensions that you're able to reflect on around the world, Ashley Saunders, and developments in Nigeria, because we hear such mixed messages, a fabulous church flourishing in southern parts of Nigeria. Uh, there are some real challenges uh, with Islamic domination of the north, and then there's this sort of central belt uh, where there's conflict that develops frequently. What are you hearing out of Nigeria so far as uh, recent persecution issues? Uh, the situation, especially in the middle belt of Nigeria, is deteriorating. Uh, attacks on Christian villages, on churches, continues to escalate. Um, and, and it's not just like burning a church building when it's empty. It's attacking a church building and those inside it worshipping and killing them, as we've heard reports in, uh, in recent times. And so it certainly is, is deteriorating. When I, uh, when I spoke at a church here in Brisbane um, during COVID, I met a lovely Nigerian man who was studying at a local university here and wasn't able to get back to see his family and was concerned for his wife and for his children uh, in this middle belt of Nigeria. 
And uh, he left and he contacted me only about a month or so ago uh, just to report that they live in constant fear of attack um, and uh, he really wishes that they could be somewhere else. And so the situation uh, is deteriorating uh, and uh, thank you one and all for praying for our brothers and sisters there. Would you mind if I finished by talking about uh, a good way in which people can get involved in Suffering Church. Hold the thought there. We've still got a few minutes. Okay. I want to take one more call, and then we'll sort of bring some loose ends together. Let's take one more call. Donna is in Newport in Victoria. Hi, Donna. Uh, hi, Neil. What are your thoughts, Donna? Yes. Uh, I was just listening before, and um, I thought I'll quickly say something in regards to the mental health and our Christian faith in Australia. I don't know how it is now, but back in or oh, back twenty years ago, um, it was my experience that if you talked about Jesus and God, uh, you were thought of as um, having a mental health issue, which is was inside a hospital um, that I attended. Okay, well, that affirms something, doesn't it? That it is already in the thinking of some, and those might be in that secular humanist uh, category that would be thinking that, but uh, it isn't beyond us to think that that might grow. A thought or two from Ashley Saunders for Donna? Uh, only Donna to be encouraged that um, uh, I am convinced that following Jesus is anything but uh, a mental illness, that following Jesus is the most important thing in our life and whether for you or others that have had that experience, be affirmed and be encouraged to keep on keeping on and to find your identity in Christ. Donna, thank you so much for your call. We'll put a line under those calls now. Uh, Ashley, as we're wrapping things up here, uh, it was a little apparent earlier where we were talking about being fearful about hearing these sorts of stories, uh, even the prospect that these things are getting closer to us in Australia. Our laws are changing, that we may well be even criminalised, or even as uh, listeners have alerted us today, the thought that we might even be perceived to have some sort of a mental illness. How do you suggest we stand firm uh, in light of these things as we're pulling some loose ends together? Continue to focus on Jesus Continue to be known for your good works and be encouraged. Uh, I'm encouraged by the fact that it was in a very hostile environment um, in the Mediterranean uh, in the first 300 years after Christ that the church grew rapidly despite persecution, despite uh, all the rest of it. And why? Because of the love that Christians had one for the other. Jesus said, by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for the other. And so um, I would simply ask listeners to ask themselves, how do I show my love for other Christians? So that people looking in will say, well, I want what they've got. I want what they're having. And, and so be known, be known for your love for each other and be known for your good works uh, is, is one of the encouragements that I would give to those callers today. Wonderful, wise words from Ashley Saunders, who's head of partnerships at Barnabas Aid in Australia. Ashley, I suspect you've made a few new friends today and there'll be listeners who'll want to connect with you. Uh, let me give the website where you can connect with Barnabas Aid. It's barnabasaid.org 
and forward slash AU. In other words, you'll go to an international website for Barnabas Aid and you'll be able to find that link there for the Australian website. And no doubt you'll be able to get a message to or connect with Ashley Saunders and follow along, uh, get on their mailing list for newsletter updates and support the good work that they do. Uh, They're not only working with evangelism issues, but they're working with global food crisis and the impacts that are on the marginalised Christians in so many nations. I think you mentioned 14 nations represented at a gathering just this week. Uh, Ashley Saunders, uh, wonderful to have your insights. Thank you so much for sharing them with listeners today on 2020. Uh, Thank you, Neil. It's a great privilege to be with you. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.